Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 153-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Zahir Ali, oral historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. And Julie Golia, director of public history at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. It's Saturday, July 16th, and Zahir and I are here at Brooklyn Bridge Park on this warm, sunny day at the 12th annual Brooklyn Hip Hop Festival. As you know, looking around, you can see how far hip hop has come. It's a different world from the Brooklyn of the 1980s and 90s that birthed hip hop that helped make Brooklyn what it is today. So in this episode, we're gonna explore the origins of Brooklyn hip hop and try to explain what made Brooklyn's particular contributions so unique and so influential. That Jamaican kid is going to school with the kid from Alabama and then they're dating the girl from Honduras and playing ball with the Jewish kid. Right. You know, so I think Brooklyn, it is just, it is where they all smash together. The DJ, they have a catalog. They know exactly where each record is. How, you know, they store it in places where they know they can't get it wet or it's certain temperature. And so we we do this naturally. Everyone else lived around Fort Green Clip Hill. We're developing their, their personas, you know, Saul Williams, most deaf, Erica Badu, these are people who were being in that space was creative and how ideas came from each other and how there's exchange of words that led to this song or this particular expression. When I think Brooklyn hip hop, I think of artists like Biggie. 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 Big Daddy Kane. And Jay-Z. Papoose. You got Biggie, you got Jay, Papoose, Mano, I mean. Most deaf. Kim, because women do rap too and are a big part of um, history of, of hip hop. What's so Brooklyn about Brooklyn hip-hop? We're going to try to figure this out with Wes Jackson, the founder and executive director of the Brooklyn Hip-Hop Festival, which just celebrated its 12th year. Wes, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Happy to be here. When we talk about hip-hop's history, I think people forget about what New York was like in the 1970s and some of the context that made it so difficult for people to succeed, the divestment, the movement out of jobs. I mean, something that is so key is that, you know, millions of African Americans came north in the Great Migration over a period of 50 years drawn by jobs that were gone in a decade, Yeah, yeah, many of the jobs right here at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, right, during the war years. And so what happens when this closes? Well, I think it just, if if I can just go back for a little bit, you talk about, like, social movements, um, the blackout, uh, is that 77, mm-hmm. um, was also a very important part of hip-hop because uh, I know one of my mentors, Joe Conzo, says is that there were a lot of crews formed after the blackout because as soon as 
the looting started, they went to the electronic stores and they took turntables and microphones and speakers because these are the things that they could not get that they desperately wanted. So you, so it was just, it's just it's an interesting sort of play if you were to map out the explosion of creativity. In many ways, hip-hop is chronicling the decline of the public infrastructure in these cities. But it's also a creative response, right? Because you don't have anything else, right? You don't have property. You don't have maybe even a career. You don't have your family. You know, people, I know when we talk about mass incarceration, your, 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 your parents are, you know, or your dad most likely is locked up. So it became LG Projects. It came, you know, you know St. James Place and Bed-Stuy. And these, um, I think it goes to a little bit of the escapism in hip-hop. Your life is kind of, if you look at it, Plainly, it's so rough and terrible, and you're not getting proper nutrition, schools, gang violence. So they say, well, I don't want to live like that. So let's turn Bedford-Stuyvesant into this magical place and take the beautiful parts of it, and let's, let's you know, blow those up. This idea of internalizing the negative and then spitting back out, you know, like some sort of unicorn, like a rainbow, is, inte- is, is really integral to hip-hop, is that... You take away music classes for me, so I go into my dad's record collection. You take away singing lessons, so I start rapping through the headphones. No dance classes, I rip up the linoleum floor and spin on the street. <laughs> it's this idea, right. or no art classes, I just I'll boost spray paint and then hit the trains. The sense of like, I know what you're doing, but it this this will be done, you know, anyway, and and then it winds up the snake eats its tail. Like Then they're like, oh, this is great. Now we want to hire graffiti artists to do our advertising. And it's like, well, that was interesting because I only exist because you never gave me a job. Right. Um, but I think that is the very, that's, that's really what it makes hip-hop hip-hop. Who would you say some of the artists are that we think about when we think about these specific neighborhoods of Brooklyn? Well, I think you certainly got to think when you think of sort of Bed-Stuy, you think of the Biggie, which is more actually Clinton Hill, mm-hmm. um, which I always thought was funny is how even back then, he was far away from the border of Bed-Stuy. People get mad at me when I say that. <laughs> uh, and St. James was already being gentrified when, when he was on his rise. Um, but you have him, you have you know Talib Kweli, uh, who I guess was sort of on the other side of Atlantic. He was more like a Park Slope mm-hmm. guy. You had uh, Mos Def or Yasin Bey, who was down in Red Hook, mm-hmm. um, but also used to uh, then, I, think, I forget what projects he he lived in also. In Bed Stuy, um, you had Stetsasonic with Daddy O. Um, it's a lot. It seems to be a lot about Bed Stuy, right? Right. You had right. Black Moon in Crown Heights, right. as you were talking about in right. Franklin Avenue. We had Jay Rue out in East New York, um, which is one of the few representatives. Once you go that far east, um, I'm trying to think of who else was down there. Uh, the Jungle Brothers. You know, Africa was also from like the heart of Bed Stuy, um, but it, but it, it's. It's interesting how it's, it focuses on this sort of centralized Brooklyn where uh, maybe the, 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 the infrastructure was falling apart, but you had a, a strong enough middle class to kind of keep it, you know, keep it all together. There's a way that Brooklyn in the 1970s and 1980s is really this place in which so many cultures are overlapping. And I think in particular, I'm thinking of Jamaican and West Indian immigrants mm-hmm. coming in. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the, the, that influence on the music. What would people have heard? And how does this make Brooklyn hip hop stand out and be a sort of a distinctive sound? Right. I think, uh, I think you're absolutely right. You had 
um, the sort of smashing of music. You may have like a, you know, a Sam Cooke, you know, playing on that street. And again, now we're we're more densely packed, right? So you, let's say you're in the projects. Sam Cooke is coming out of Four B, and then you know, you know, you know Marley or Bob Marley or some roots are coming in there. And then that Jamaican kid is going to school with the kid from Alabama, and then they're dating the girl from Honduras and playing ball with the Jewish kid. Right. You know, so I think Brooklyn, it, it is just, it is where they're all smashed together. And then you, then we're all sitting around like, well, I'm going to use that tempo from the reggae song. Right. Right. right? And then I'm going to take that, maybe that, the, the drums from the, you know, from the Sam Cooke song. And then, you know, have this sort of, and then the, my cadence, my vocal cadence may switch. Before, and you can hear it in a lot of hip hop. You can, if you listen to sort of a lot of most deaf, um, who, as far as I know, is like sort of like southern black, right? But he has a lot of you know reggae influence in his songs because it was just around you. You could not live in Brooklyn and not hear that or eat that food, right? You're walking down the street, there's McDonald's and there's Church's Chicken, but there's also you know. You know, what's it, like Buff Patty or Golden Crust. Right, or, right. So you may not even know what a doubles is, but your man does. Right. So he's coming after school right. and he gets it and you just, you're ingesting literally and figuratively that, that culture. Then you spit it back out and it's like, wow, I've never actually heard this, but it makes total sense. You know, it's like peanut butter and jelly. And it's actually better together than separate. There are a couple really important female hip-hop icons who've come out of Brooklyn, Foxy Brown, Lil' Kim, MC Light. And it seems to me that gender adds in yet another sort of complicated layer to this. I wonder if you can, can we think about, was there a gendered experience of, of creating hip-hop in Brooklyn? I think in those early days, uh, and because maybe the density, there was it was a little bit more egalitarians like if you could rhyme then you're good and I don't really I'm not going to think twice about it um, especially with Light like it was like MC Light when she was at her height she was just the best MC out and I think nobody really thought about her as a woman I mean she obviously was a woman but that was not certainly the reason why she was in there I think it is interesting when you start talking about a little Kim and Foxy Brown which come much later after the misogyny kind of explodes, like post NWA, when it really is becomes acceptable to say the sort of B word, and there's not enough women to push back against it, I think that I've had a long theory that you know, Little Kim is actually like a great feminist icon, you know, because she was sexual and she was you know posting posing with her just with her legs wide open but if you listen to it she was very clear like i make the money like right now in this circle i'm the richest person so you perform oral sex on me like a guy would say it to a girl she would just flip it and she had plenty of guys be like okay fine you know i'll i'll do whatever you say the queen bee so i think she owned this was a new where light kind of maybe sometimes bundled up her sexuality because either she didn't want it to be, you know, used against her. Kim was like, oh, all y'all want me? Well, I'm going to use that power right. over you. To complicate things, and then perhaps that opens up the door for this sort of segregation of the sexes and the way that a lot of, main, especially mainstream hip-hop plays out now. It's hard to imagine a mainstream female hip-hop icon who is not sort of, marketing her own sexuality. Yeah. 
And when we're talking about people like Foxy Brown and Lil' Kim, in the, you know, both of whom kind of emerged in the 90s, that really seems to be a high point of broken hip-hop. Yeah, Wes, what do you think? Where would you identify this high point in the history of hip-hop in Brooklyn? I mean, it has to be that late 90s into the early 2000s, like the rise, because it really starts with the rise of Biggie. He he leaves, Jay-Z comes, and then, I mean, obviously, let's say we, don't, we haven't talked about him. Pound for Pound, by any metric, the greatest of all time came from Brooklyn. And I'm talking artistically, financially, yeah. influence. Yeah. Jay-Z is, is without peer. Uh, and he came from sort of Marcy. But he's off of the heels of Biggie. But then on the other side, while Jay-Z was ascending, you have uh, Yasin and Kwali right. bringing right. back this sort of Afrocentric, community-based right. hip-hop. So for a moment, you blink. And the blingiest blinging yacht guy is in Mar is from Brooklyn, right. and the crunchiest blackest <laughs> yes. you know black power. Mom was a dude. professor, right? right. right. The son right. of intellectuals, yeah. right. private school kid is also from right across town. So they ran. I think they were the heart and soul of hip hop. What impact do you think gentrification has had on um, hip hop in Brooklyn? I, I I honestly think that gentrification gentrification is the single biggest threat to hip hop because it attacks, it, it basically degrades all of the things that we were talking about. So now, you know, you walk down the street, you're not having the Jewish kid and the Jamaican kid and the Puerto Rican kid. It's just, I don't know, it's just the waspy kid now walking up and down the street. And I, and I say that in the most, you know, loving way, but it becomes monochromatic. And that's just not, or it's becoming worse, it's becoming segregated. I think for hip-hop, I get very, I get very worried about, are we going to create that next wave? How do you mitigate the forces that you're describing that sort of alienate the development of hip-hop from our borough? I think we just got to just sort of break down those walls and ask for the, you know, the reinvestment. Well, that seems to be what the Brooklyn Hip Hop Festival has been doing for the last 12 years. Tell us... Was that one of your reasons for starting the festival? And I said, we need to have like a, we need to have a home, very much like this building to say, listen, we're going we're gonna to document this, we're going to celebrate this, and every year we're going to be able to come, you'll be able to come here and be with other hip-hop friends where hip-hop was perfected. Brooklyn hip hop, I think of the 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 urban experience, uh, you know, the, the 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 young person's urban experience, and Brooklyn is such a melting pot of that. I think the things that young people go through in Brooklyn is the same thing that young people go through globally, and I, I think it's just a powerful tool that unites young people. What does it mean to archive hip hop's history, culture, and sound? Here to explore this question with us is Martha Diaz a media producer, archivist, and educator who's been documenting hip-hop for over 20 years. As a hip-hop archivist, I would say I have been documenting the movement, the culture, for the past 25 years. Um, when I started my career um, at YoMTV Raps, I was helping to produce shows that were documenting the culture. And I kept a lot of paraphernalia, a lot of the shows, and throughout the 25 years, I've just been kind of 
um, keeping track of how we've evolved. Um, some people archive papers, some people archive media, some people archive clothes, some people have sneakers, you know. It depends on your interests. And so I think that the, the definition of archiving is changing with uh, the 21st century. I think we've really found as we've been putting together this episode that with a with a with a movement that is so sonic, so sound based, um, it's really kind of changed the way that we are, I think about archives, yeah. which is often very, especially here, very textual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, with oral history, of course, you introduce audio, but um, when you're looking at hip hop, hip hop is so I think interdisciplinary, right? Like there's I mean, people think of the music, but it's not just the music. It's the dance. It is the graffiti. It is the, you know, someone's record collection is yes. an archive, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's almost like a meta archive. Like hip-hop itself is an archival practice. Yes. Right? It is. I, I like the way you put that. I think the hip-hop generation is that first generation that has been able to um, experiment with media. Um, we are transforming um, records and we are in innovating. You know, Grandmaster Kaz always says, you know, hip hop didn't invent anything. We reinvented everything. And how do we do that? Well, we collect and we process and we, you know, regurgitate it into something else. How, how would you say that hip hop has informed your practice as an archivist? Well, I would say that hip-hop culture is, um, although we have many elements, we are very organized in, in that sense. And like the, the producer, the DJ, more than all the other artists, I would say, they have a catalog, right? They know how to um, organize their tapes. You know, Africa Bambata donated 40,000 records to Cornell University. Questlove has his collection, and Bismarcky has it, and they know exactly where each record is. How, you know, they store it in places where they know they can't get it wet or it's certain temperature. And so we, we do this naturally. That is, I guess, a hip-hop practice that can be transferred into mm -hmm. um, preservation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk about what motivated that sort of preservation ethos. Was it a conscious sort of political vision of preserving the birth of movement as it was happening? We knew that we were doing something special. And the black books, you know, sharing it amongst your peers and having tags by some of the famous dudes, like that was special. And we were just preserving it for our history. Now when we look back and say, wow, thank God we saved this because nobody was looking to um, preserve it for us. I, I don't think we had that political consciousness that that this was something that could be erased one day. We just wanted to keep it for ourselves, to remind ourselves that we did this. Hmm. Hip-hop practitioners always considered what they were doing as a powerful art form and cultural force, but it took mainstream institutions a while to come around. MTV took a while before they featured rap videos. Galleries took a while before they featured graffiti. And the same can be said of archives. 
Um, how would you characterize the relationship between the traditional archival institutions and hip hop? The first hip hop archive that was created was um, at the Schomburg Center, and um, they connected it to African American history, and um, they saw the connection between the work that um, young black and brown kids from the city were doing with the black arts movement. And Harvard created the second one. And when we look at the other institution, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Experimental Museum, um, Cornell University, other universities, they are not necessarily part of hip hop culture or from our generation. However, it is important that we preserve hip hop now because now we're 43 years deep in the culture. And as we evolve, we're moving away from the history and young people today don't remember that. And we need people to preserve it and somehow connect to students and, and the youth. What is happening now is that we are discovering that people have been collecting, that we are archiving, but we're not doing it professionally, right? And we're starting to see that, oh, these institutions want our collections and we are negotiating better, right? Before it was like, here, just preserve it. I, you know, it, it needs to go in the vault. Now we're saying, no, this is what we have. This is what we want to do uh, with the collection. And if we're going to work together to preserve my legacy, we want to make sure that is accessible and that you're going to pay for some of this and that I'm going to be involved in the curating and, and interpreting of my collection. And that is a big change. And, and that idea of having a voice in one's own history, I would guess, is one of the motivating factors behind this new hip-hop museum that you're involved in. The Universal Hip-Hop Museum is um, being developed in the Bronx, in the old Bronx courthouse. And yeah, we're doing it on our own terms. And you've been appointed the chief archivist at the Universal Hip-Hop Museum. So tell us what it's like to build this archives from the ground up. Because the physical space needs uh, to be um, refurbished, right, it's going to take a long time. I, 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 I'm assuming a, between three to five years. In the meantime, we're developing a virtual museum in which we could scan some of this stuff and even create, like, 3D experiences with um, some of the places because, you know, when we think about hip-hop, it isn't just um, cultural material, it's physical spaces, you know, that we, that's where we congregate, right? And so it's it's going to be challenging, but it's, at, in some ways, it's, it's easier to do a virtual museum than to actually build out a physical storage vault, you know, with the right temperature, with the right, um, you know, shelves and and, um, you know, archiving material that needed to preserve it for long-term use. Hip-hop as a culture so shifted the paradigm of what we understand to be music, what we understand to be dance, what we understand to be art, what we understand to be uh, music production or performance, right? Um, it, would, it would only be 
logical. It would only make sense for hip hop to also challenge um, how we think about archiving, right? Yes, and how we can use it use it for education because ultimately again you know it, it is about access and what we do with our history you know we don't want our collections to be in in a basement collecting dust we want it to be a living archive our pioneers are still alive and you know they're 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 lecturing they're uh, um, conducting workshops and they have their own programs now, and we should um, interact with them as much as possible. That's why inst those institutions that we mentioned that are collecting hip hop, they they see um, the need to form forge partnerships with the pioneers. And now, you know, four generations in, you know, we have really young people um, like Joey Badass that pay homage to the pioneers so they see a, a way to connect the generations and it's very exciting because hip-hop has so many stories right we have many perspectives and the more we save the bigger the picture and we could see things clearly the fewer voices you know the more holes there are as an educator, how do you bring these different perspectives uh, to the classroom? You know, I teach um, a hip-hop history course at uh, Gallatin at NYU, and it's called uh, Hip-Hop Trails, Tracing um, Hip-Hop History and Culture. And uh, we watch movies every in, every in every class. I invite the pioneers to either Skype in or join the class. We do walking tours because, of course, NYU is located in a place where hip-hop and punk and rock and new wave were all kind of connecting. Um, it's also the campus where Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons created Def Jam. And we can go on and on, right? And we also take a bus tour, the Hush Hip-Hop Tour, which takes us to different landmarks around the city. We, the last class we went to Queensbridge and Roxanne Chante was our guide. Wow. When we visit these landmarks, for example, like Brooklyn, right, we have ODB's mural, we have um, Big Papa, you know, Biggie's mural. Um, we also go to like the Inkiro bookstore, which Talib Kweli and Mos Def used to own, which is no longer there. And this is why it's important to keep track of these things because we're building over and over, you know, um, different buildings and homes and street signs are now being named after hip hop artists. And it's important that, again, we archive our history because, you know, it's not just um, the music and the the products it's the space yeah spaces that we take over yeah and build like me and my brother like bond over music so i just remember like riding with him and like kind of like and i was always with like the older cat so like they probably just putting me on game and just like bringing me along so the fact that i even was like around my my uh, bro when he was like playing that music i guess at the time was ill so i guess that's that's what it brings back to me just being able to bond with my bro over over hip hop 
In this installment of Voices in Brooklyn, we are going to listen to some clips from a 2009 interview with Nelson George. Nelson George is a filmmaker, an author, a journalist, cultural critic, incredibly prolific. Um, And he is also a born and bred Brooklynite. He was born and grew up in East New York in Brownsville. And he's lived for the past 25 or so years in the neighborhood of Fort Greene. The clip we're about to listen to tells the story of how film director Spike Lee ended up collaborating with hip-hop group Public Enemy uh, on the film Do the Right Thing. A great story that sort of exemplifies the, the connectivity, okay, was that, um, so Spike, was a, is a, when, when he lived around here, he's a big bike rider, he used to be a big bike rider. And he would get up early in the morning. If you got up early, for every reason, I was a late night guy, but for every, if I was for every reason I was up early, I'd see Spike often on his bike ride, riding up Willoughby Avenue or riding the cow or just, you know, getting his morning exercise. In. So he wrote the script to do the right thing. In his apartment. By then, he had moved to uh, on this street. He was, I'm on Washington Park now. He lived six or seven doors down, in a ground floor apartment. And he wrote the script to do the right thing. He wanted to give it to Public Enemy. A friend of ours named Bill Stephanie, who worked for Def Jam and was involved with Public Enemy, lived then on Lafayette, and over by uh, by Mike's. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Spike just got on his bike and biked the script over to him one morning. <laughs> and then Bill read it and gave it to Public Enemy. And there you have the opening credits to do the right thing. And the outcome of that collaboration that Nelson George is telling us about is, of course, Public Enemy's anthemic Fight the Power, which opens the credits for Do the Right Thing, provides this kind of leitmotif that recurs throughout the film, and also became one of Public Enemy's biggest hits and was used for a music video that was filmed in Brooklyn where kind of like rally was simulated, rally was staged. And it really cemented hip hop and Brooklyn and film in this real strong visual way. Yeah, and it solidified it for a national audience. I mean, I think that we've been talking a lot about neighborhoods and how hip-hop has played out on the ground, but this is now, I think, an iconic sound, an iconic vision that is disseminated to the rest of the country through this incredibly important movie. Um, what, what I liked about George's Reflections is that it reminds us how um, interdisciplinary hip hop is as a genre, um, multi how multimedia it is. That um, you know this is a, not just about making music, but this is about um, a visual way of disseminating it, and it's also a very political one. And it's sort of proud of its its politics. One of the interesting things also about this clip is talking about the role of proximity. I'm I'm convinced that uh, if Spike Lee wanted to get Public Enemy, he would have gotten them whether or not their their agent was a bike ride away. He would have bike. <laughs> right. He would have rode his bike over the bridge right. if he had to. Right. So, <laughs> but he didn't. But it, but I, but I, I I do think there is something to be said about the kind of convenience or coincidence of having this density of people in the same space or in shared spaces in such proximity with each other working. This is also part of the story of of hip-hop in place. The next clip talks about another generation of artists being inspired by being in these these kind of spaces in Fort Greene. 
I would say the, another turning point, and uh, interesting, just in terms of re uh, architecture, I guess would be, um, is when the Brooklyn Moon happened, which was uh, I don't think it's exactly that's that's like early '90s, when the spoken word thing became huge in New York, you know, Eureka Cafe was was hot again, and a few other spots, but in Brooklyn it became the Brooklyn Moon Cafe on a Friday night, and uh, Mike. Uh, Mike's last name. Mike, who, run, who still owns the Brooklyn Moon, um, began doing these open mic things. It became spoken word, and that. So if if let's say Spike, myself, Chris Rock to some degree, um, there's a bunch of who are like the first wave. The Brooklyn Moon brought in a whole other wave of people, because then you saw Most Deaf and Tali Kweli before they were a rap duo. You saw Common, who was hanging out here a lot and lived in Brooklyn during part of his time. Um, and probably the most famous person, well, one of them is, is Erica Badu, who came to New York to make, from Dallas to make her first album and lived above Moshud for years. And, and I don't know if she still has a place, she kept a place there even after her success. Oh, wow. And she would, um, she would go up and you'd see her on, you know, she'd go up and do stuff at the Brooklyn Moon. Um, so in the Brooklyn, you could see that scene, there were several artists in that scene who became major stars. Sarah Jones, who was another regular at the Brooklyn Moon. Carl mm -hmm. uh, Hancock Rucks. Um, who else am I missing who's really essential? Oh, Saul Williams. So all of these folks were people who primarily lived in the area. I don't know if Sarah did, but everyone else lived around Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, were developing their, their personas you know, Saul Williams, Most Deaf, Erica Badu, Com these are people who are, if not household names, they're certainly very well-known names in, the, in American pop culture. All of them through, the, their, again, the community and the neighborhood. And uh, if you're interviewing those people, they'll tell you about being, how being in that space was creative and how ideas came from each other and how there's an exchange of words that led to this song or this particular expression. So again, this theme of urban density as this sort of incubator for creativity and ideas I think is so important here. The idea that artists were living and working in what is geographically actually a pretty small neighborhood um, it, it is what makes possible this kind of creative foment and, and in, a, and a different, in a different decade, right? In the 1990s. Yeah. I also think it's it's funny I hear George talking about like a subgenre of Brooklyn hip hop, yeah. right? This is a neighborhood that is that is creating a very particular form of hip hop. It's a progressive form. There's a sense of intelligentsia uh, here and I think you know again this feels very different than what we might be talking about if we were listening to, right. to somebody talk about artistic movements in Brownsville, artistic movements in Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights, even nearby in downtown Brooklyn. Right. I think that tells us the importance of space in shaping the kind of culture that emerges that the kind of hip-hop that is nurtured on a Friday night in a spoken word mm -hmm. program mm -hmm. at a restaurant mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is going to reflect a certain kind mm -hmm. of ethos that might be different than the kind of hip-hop that is nurtured on the playground or in the public square or in the high school. It's going to be different, and I think that is part of the story of hip-hop in Brooklyn. In many ways, hip-hop tells the story of place in that way, 
right? And it, sometimes it's it's very direct. Like people are name checking their their hood or their right. city and stuff. Right. But it's also less direct, right? Like the kind of hip hop that is emerging mm-hmm. um, sometimes bears the stamp of the circumstances out of which it emerged, and those circumstances, in some respects, are place determined. Yeah. I discovered Jean Grey was the first time I realized how male-dominated hip-hop was because I could relate 150% to everything she was saying and, she, and it was definitely like the fact that she was a woman just it wasn't like the content the themes are similar but there's something about how you tell that story or what that part of a story that's different We're having an incredibly exciting summer here at Brooklyn Historical Society, and among the things that we're all excited about is the opening of a new exhibition. And here to tell us about that exhibition is Marsha Eli, Vice President of Programs and External Affairs at Brooklyn Historical Society. Marsha, thank you for joining us. Thrilled to be here. So Marsha, you've really directed this project from its inception. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the exhibition called, first of all? The exhibition is called Truman Capote's Brooklyn, The Lost Photographs of David Addy. Um, And it is a beautiful exhibit of photographs that were taken by David Addy in 1958 that show a long bygone Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights and down to the waterfront, um, that were discovered just within the last couple of years by his son, Eli Addy. Um, So aside from these magnificent photographs, there's a wonderful detective story here that's told in the exhibition of a son understanding uh, his father's legacy. I've gotten a little sneak peek of the images, and they're so evocative. So maybe tell us about a few of your favorite images in in the exhibition. There's some magnificent photographs with the Brooklyn Bridge in the background, very moody. Um, You can really smell and hear and feel the environment when you look at these photographs. Um, And then, of course, are these surprising portraits of Truman Capote in this magnificent mansion um, where he lived, lived not in the magnificent mansion proper, (laughs) but rather a couple of rooms in the basement. Nonetheless, he had these portraits taken in the sweeping stairway. Um, He looks very, very grand. So, Marcia, how can people see this exhibit? It will be open for about a year. So there's plenty of opportunity to come and, and see it, and we hope lots of people do. There are a few other attractions happening here at Brooklyn Historical Society in the month of August that we think you'll be interested in checking out. One of them is the screening of Do the Right Thing on Monday, August 1st at 7 p.m. as part of our Brooklyn On Screen series. Do the Right Thing, of course, is the iconic film by Spike Lee in 1989 that depicted uh, the tensions in a hot summer day in Bed-Stuy. The following week, we are having... Um, event that I'm really excited about called Crown Heights Encounters, Listening Back, Moving Forward. And this, to some extent, is to chronicle the the, the, the 25th anniversary of a, a major event in Brooklyn's history, the Crown Heights, well, we can have a whole big debate about what we want to call it, the Crown Heights riots, the Crown Heights uprising, the Crown Heights violence. Um, my friend Zaheer here is actually dedicating an entire oral history project to exploring the history of Crown Heights, but actually decentering the story um, 
from this one event. But we're going to join up with Weeksville Heritage Center. We're going to join up with Brooklyn Movement Center on August 10th at 6.30 p.m. at BHS. And we're going to do some listening to oral histories and talk about what has changed and, and maybe what hasn't changed in the neighborhood of Crown Heights. We hope you can attend. We hope it whets your appetite because we're going to be spending our August episode actually digging deeper into the history, the present, and the future of the neighborhood of Crown Heights. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn hip-hop history. Thanks to our guests, Wes Jackson, Martha Diaz, Marsha Eli, and a special shout-out to the folks at the Brooklyn Hip-Hop Festival. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us at iTunes or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Learn more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. My name is Corey Toole. I'm from uh, Durham, North Carolina. Divine Frederick, Yonkers, New York. Michael, I'm from uh, Yonkers as well. Maya, Brownsville. Justin, I'm from Brownsville, Brooklyn. Crystal Anderson from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Victor X. Moore, Charlotte, North Carolina by way of Patterson, New Jersey. Reginald St. Tell from Long Island. Ryan D'Souza from London in the UK. Kila in the South Sudan. Khalil Mohammed, Crown Heights. Saad Abdul Kabir, and I'm from Brooklyn, New York. 